Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and Halloween Hangover Week continues. Rob, today, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about melting. Yeah, so basically the reason for this episode is that we are publishing this the first week of November, but we are recording it the last week of October. So we didn't want to work on any non-Halloween material the week of Halloween, uh, so Halloween on the show is lasting an extra week. Uh, so we're, we're going to get into some topics here that are a little bit horror-themed in places, but also I think go beyond horror and, and maybe just get into a, a, a study of a very particular symbol or metaphor in the human experience and a discussion of what it means. You know, one of the first movies we talked about in October this year, I think it was the first one, was uh, was the House of Wax movie starring Vincent mm-hmm. Price. So we, we did a whole episode about wax horror. And one of the things that you see time and again in these wax murder movies is there's the scene where the palace of wax burns down and you watch all of the wax figures melting. Uh, yes. the, the, it's got to happen in every one of these stories. And there's clearly some kind of psychological thing going on where the imagery there is supposed to resemble human beings actually melting and that's what the fascination is in. But another thing about it uh, that that just recently struck me as a reason to have those wax figure melting scenes is it's almost like a way of sneaking in gore, extra gore around the sensors. Like if you couldn't get a melting human past uh, you know the MPAA or whatever, you probably can get some melting humanoid wax figures. Yeah, I wonder like how much violence and gore involving a clear... Um, mannequin or wax figure, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, just a, a pure effigy, could you get away with? Uh, I mean, to a certain extent, you see that with other things, right? Like you hear about movies uh, where they're like, oh, yeah, we decided that the monster or the villain should have green blood because then we can use as much as we want. <laughs> but if mm-hmm. it were red, we couldn't show it, that sort of thing. So, but yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it, kinda, it ties back to a lot of the themes that we talked about in the the, the wax episode, you know, like what happens when we watch uh, violence involving an effigy or some sort of sacrament involving an effigy, uh, it you know we we can't help but associate then those movements, violent or otherwise, with the person that it is resembling or like just a, a human in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's fitting that we kicked off our, our Halloween season this year with wax, and we're going to close it out with the melt. Now, there are a couple of ways you could look at this. One, I think, is just there is a good melting scene in a movie, such as in Raiders of the Lost Ark has a famous classic uh, Nazi melting scene. But then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you you can go – you can really embrace it to the, the nth degree and go full melt movie, which is a sort of subgenre of its own of like horror, gore, gross-out films that are all just about people melting. Well, it's just kind of the difference between uh, – yeah, a- like a blockbuster like Raiders and a, a, a smaller picture or a B picture, right? Like Raiders is a film that does a lot of things exceedingly well. And one of them is the use of a practical special effect to make it look like someone's melting. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times with these B, with the B film, you know, you're lucky if you get one thing that's done really well. And mm-hmm. sometimes like that is the, that is the push with the film. Like that is the energy of the film. Like, Look, we can do a really good melting scene. Let's build a movie around our ability to do this, or at least our desire to do this, you know? Well, it's kind of like how a B-movie can maybe have a budget for one star, so you can just get Vincent Price or something, and then you try mm-hmm. to build it around that star. Or maybe if you just have a budget for a really good makeup effects artist, then you build the whole film around that. Yeah, exactly. And and in many cases, that that can be enough. Um, I also think it's certainly a case, especially with some of these earlier pictures we're talking about, where they they strike a chord and they they for like there's something about the melting human that resonates strongly with us and makes us want to go back and reexamine it. Maybe not so deeply, <laughs> certainly with some of these films, but it we have to come back for more. There's just something intriguing about about the melting human, and I think a lot of it does go back to wax effigies and some of the things we discussed in that past episode. But in terms of just the cinnamon that we grow up on, 
uh, for my own part, and I feel like other people probably sit, share this cinematic uh, legacy as well. I think of Raiders, of course, from '81, uh, which mm-hmm. we just uh, just discussed. But the other big one, of course, is 1939's The Wizard of Oz, which is not the goriest scene ever, but a very memorable scene, often seen at a young age for the first time, in which the Wicked Witch of the West is splashed with water and melts away into uh, like smoking nothingness. The feeling of that scene is very much uh, defined by the fact that it's water that does it. Mm -hmm. If it had been sulfuric acid or something that that supposedly melts her, that scene would be more horrific. But the fact that she's melted by water gives it a a fairy tale kind of quality that actually makes it less body horrific, less gruesome and more magical and, and like something that would happen in a Grimm's fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something the, the purity of water is the only thing that could destroy such a like a foul creature, right? Though that would be a, a hilarious ending to the movie where they find out the secret is you've got to throw sulfuric acid on the witch. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get more into the contemplative uh, uh, part of this uh, podcast in a bit, but we need to go ahead and talk about a few other melt movies before we move forward, uh, just to establish the the firm ground upon which we're going to to build everything else. And I think one of the one of the big ones is, uh, or I don't know, maybe for some of you, you never heard of it, but um, a big one for me is 1977's The Incredible Melting Man. The plot here is uh, was not original to this picture. There had been a, some, there had been at least one other film, probably more before it, that explored a similar contemplation. And that is, uh, you have an astronaut goes into space, is exposed to cosmic radiation, and he brings this home. Uh, in this case, the the radiation has caused him to melt. And he can slow down this melting by eating human flesh. And he also has radioactive powers, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, Seems kind of similar to the plot of Monster A Go-Go, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And I think there's a... There's a well, there's a movie with Frankenstein in the title that has a similar element like like clearly Frankenstein meets the space monster is that it I think it had a similar plot yeah, I, yeah. and I think there are more films because obviously you, you're dealing with the this this one is perhaps a kind of an homage to the radioactive cinema of the the previous decades and like this was on everybody's mind in the post war period in the mm-hmm. in the shadow of the mushroom cloud you know this was the, these were the kinds of of, of myths we kept uh, stirring up. Now, many of you probably know this film because it was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day. And the other thing that's really key about it is that the the legendary Rick Baker uh, did effects on it. And the effects are quite terrifying of these, this like melting man. It's just kind of like perpetually melting despite th- throughout the film. Um, and uh, maybe in part because of the effectiveness of those uh, effects – it this this uh, what started out as uh, an intended horror parody became a straight horror film. Like the the producers apparently took comedic scenes out of the picture uh, in order to emphasize the <laughs> horror. Uh, there's something about the melting man, especially when depicted convincingly uh, through you know someone's work like Rick Baker's, that you just can't ignore. Movies don't usually go that way during production. It's much more common for them to go the other way, where you embrace comedy and add more comedy in. Yeah, it's like, this looks this look, looks dumb. Let's ham it up a little bit. Let's uh-huh. pretend like we meant to do this. Uh, uh, an interesting fact about the melt effects in this film, um, the Rick B- Baker films uh, apparently inspired... Uh, the uh, the effects in RoboCop. You know, there's that infamous scene in RoboCop where one of the henchmen gets toxic waste uh, splattered all over them. Yeah, a meal, And they yeah. start melting. Yeah. Uh, a scene that really shook me when I saw it way too early in my life. Children should not watch RoboCop. No, not at all. So in these two previous examples, we mentioned the melt almost uh, being in parody uh, or, you know, in the case of RoboCop playing into sort of an ultra-violent satire of American culture. But there are more comedic examples to consider as well. Uh, one of them, I, I, I believe you've seen this, and I think we've talked about this one before, Joe, but 1987 Street Trash. It's been a long time since I saw it, but my, my friend Ben showed it to me many, many years ago, and it is uh, – that is a – absolutely grotesque film of the highest order yeah it is a it's a i guess it's supposed to be a black comedy uh you know it's filled with gallows humor um and just just atrocities it's just an atrocious film you should not watch unless you were into atrocious (laughs) 1980s cinema (laughs) even less for children than robocop yeah it's uh it is just wall-to-wall humans melting and disgusting nastiness yeah but the, the 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 
the key melt, and it has a fabulous melt scene in it, involves this uh, this plot element where there's this cheap liquor that's going around. I think it's called like Tinafly Viper. Yeah, they find it in the basement of a liquor store and start selling it, and it mm-hmm. makes people melt. Yeah, like there's a scene where a uh, like a, a homeless individual or a hobo or or something. Um, gets a bottle of this, starts drinking it, then starts melting whilst sitting on a like a a, a discarded toilet mm-hmm. uh, out in a junk field. And he melts into the toilet and then goes down the toilet bowl. But they do it in a way where it's like it's not like a purely gory melt. Like it has – it's kind of a technicolor melt. So it's not actually as bloody yeah. or gross as I'm making it sound. It's more surreal and comic booky. Well, it is gross, but as he melts into the toilet, he's turning Lisa Frank colors. So he's yeah. like blue and green and pink as he melts. Now, uh, another um, movie that has, uh, if not absolute melting, something very much like melting, uh, Troll 2 from 1990. Ah, uh, yes. Where, uh, so I watched Troll 2 probably at least 50 times when I was in college. Uh, but it's weird because now it's been a while since I've seen it. We're, we're about to rewatch it for Weird House Cinema. But I, I, what I recall is there's like Nilbog milk in this town full of goblins. And when people drink it or eat the food there, whatever it is, they get poisoned. And then their bodies are reduced to this kind of green sap as they slowly turn into plants and green jello. And, and they become food for vegetarian goblins. Pretty much, yeah. So if, if that sounds intriguing uh, – Pay attention to our feed. We'll come back and discuss it in in full uh, in just a little bit. <laughs> Another uh, Melt movie, this one from the 80s, is uh, The Stuff, uh, 85. This one is by the uh, the master Larry Cohen, starring uh, Saturday Night Live's Garrett Morris. And this is one I haven't actually seen, but I have seen the key melting scene in it in which Garrett Morris kind of mutates slash, slash melts into a big blob of killer Cool Whip. If I recall, the the real moral of the stuff is that you need a strong FDA with good inspection provisions and regulations on on consumer goods, because I I think it's like a packaged yogurt product or something like that that Mm -hmm. ends up turning people into uh, into liquid in that way. Uh, Let's see. What are some other melt films that come to mind? Um, Or at least scenes that have films that have good melt scenes in them. Uh, These are all played for straight horror, uh, but uh, there's The Devil's Reign. That's where the rain melts the Satanist. Uh, there's some melting in the Evil Dead. Obviously, the Gremlins movies have uh, some fabulous melting. Warlock has a melt scene, as I recall. 1988's The Blob is actually a, a wonderful melt film in that not only is the blob itself very amorphous and melty, but it's it's always just anytime it gets a person, it starts melting them, starts dissolving them, digesting them uh, in real grotesque time. Yeah, the blob I think is a is an underrated type of horror because something you know if we were like smaller types of animals, there could be real blob type horror to worry about in the real world. I don't think there are any major predators that would uh, uh, that would prey on a human sized organism by digesting it externally with enzymes, but that happens all the time to you know smaller types of creatures in the ocean or in the like insect world. Uh, I mean, basically, a lot of what a spider does to you if it catches you is it will uh, sort of spit enzymes into you that dissolve your inner body parts, melt them, and turn them into a soup that the spider can suck out of you. Do you remember the? Uh, of course, I, I know the answer to this. I know you remember these guys, but the winged creatures in Beastmaster. Yes, they do a form of external uh, digestion on the creatures they catch. They like wrap them in their big wings, mm-hmm. and then they just like turn to jelly, and presumably they eat at least some of the jelly. Nice. Um, other films. Let's see. Take more of a, a weird sci-fi uh, approach to melting. Uh, Time Cop, which we've we've mentioned on the show before features a great melt scene when a character comes into physical contact with their past self uh they melt away into nothingness together uh-huh. i'm not Is sure exactly C- cgi melt scene yeah it's a cgi melt scene which doesn't hold up as well today but at the time was was pretty crazy as i recall all cgi seemed like that in the 90s you remember when we were all saying how good the cgi and mortal combat the motion picture was <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, other films that come to mind, uh, Toxic Avenger has some melting in it. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Society by Brian Yuzna uh, is another sort of video nasty that has uh, a certain amount of um, orgiastic melting between characters, characters melting into each other, etc. 
There's a really spectacular melting scene in Fright Night where the vampire is familiar in that movie. Uh, so the vampire is Chris Sarandon, but he's got this apparently human helper named Billy. Uh, and this is, I don't know, it's something that a lot of vampire movies have is like the vampire can't go out in the daytime. So he's got a helper who goes out and does stuff with him or does mm-hmm. stuff for him during the day. For example, in um, in Salem's Lot, this is a, the character Straker, who's played by, uh, oh, what's his name? James Mason. Who's just wonderful in the role, you know, back priest, back shaman. Uh, but, uh, but in this movie, the James Mason role is, uh, I can't remember the actor's name who plays him, but the character's name is Billy. And later in the film, when the, when the characters start fighting Billy, I think they shoot him with a revolver and they discover he's not quite human at all, actually. Or if he is human, he's cursed in some kind of way because after he is killed, he melts into a green puddle of, of bones and goo. Real quick. Is it Roddy McDowell? No, no. Roddy McDowell plays the Peter Cushing character in the movie. He plays uh, okay. an actor who regularly plays Van Helsing type roles in in films within the film. I just looked him up. His, the actor's name is Jonathan Stark. Uh, looks like he's also in House Two, the second story. Oh, and in an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Maybe we'll have to come back to that another time. Now, another film that some of you might be thinking of that involves like melting, external digestion, et cetera, is, of course, David Cronenberg's The Fly, mm-hmm. which we, we recently did, uh, or sometime earlier this year, we did an episode on. Uh, particularly, we, we discussed the themes of the plasma pool uh, in that picture. Uh, because I, I, and I think David Cronenberg's film here is worth uh, focusing on because certainly there's a lot of meltish body horror that's going on in that film characters basically rotting and falling apart etc uh but the 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 brundle character brings up this idea of the plasma pool as this thing to to dive into and be reborn out of which itself is I, i think nicely represents the other side of of the coin with our idea of melting uh because it brings with it again the idea of rebirth and we see a version of this in the natural world as well it's not all just amoebas digesting things we also see um this uh, jellification this this melting and then rebirth in metamorphosis so we often don't realize this but but what a caterpillar does inside a chrysalis or cocoon is essentially a full body melt. Mm-hmm. It digests itself. It releases enzymes that dissolve almost all of its tissues, re- reducing itself to an oozing goop. Uh, only the imaginal discs survive this process, and these develop into the adult body parts of the mature butterfly or moth that ultimately emerges. So again, the larval form must melt before it becomes an adult. It must, granted, within the protective uh, frame of the, the chrysalis or cocoon, it must give up all of its hard exteriors. It must liquefy, undergo a self-digestion, become an ooze, and then that ooze becomes the butterfly. It is weird to think about, if you focus on it for a second, that across every generation of humans, the body plan has to return to a mass of undifferentiated cells. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, yeah. you know, you, you basically turn into a little lump of goo. And then, of course, can the body can be reconstituted based on, on uh, uh, recombined DNA from the parents. But, but yeah, f- for a while, this line of organisms coming down the ages, ever since the, the, be- the beginning of life on Earth, has always been reduced back to a kind of primordial ooze with each generation every time it changes over. Yeah, I wonder if, especially as we get more into, you know, certainly the modern age and uh, and a more scientifically literate, um, you know, public, I wonder if that plays into our appreciation of the melt, at least on a subconscious level, this (laughs) idea that we are all essentially creamy nougat, and therefore to see us reduced to creamy nougat, uh, you know, fills us with a certain wonder or horror or just sort of, uh, you know, kind of spiritual um, awe. Yeah, our genetic essence, at least, is contained in the nougat, and we could be rebuilt from the nougat. By the way, uh, on the topic of uh, imaginal selves, I once wrote an article about gremlins for How Stuff Works, in which um, uh, I, I, I tried to tr- make scientific sense of the gremlins' biology and the gremlin mogwai uh, re- uh, relationship, which is, is uh, was a challenge to do, but 
I, I felt like the, the the closest we could come to describing some of the things that happen, like the um, the water triggering um, uh, asexual budding, uh, or the um, or specifically the idea of sunlight melting them, might be linked to uh, some sort of biological impulse to uh, self-digest within the cocoon that is then triggered outside of the cocoon uh, in the case of uh, light-exposed mogwai and gremlins. You should have been present at that scene uh, depicted in the Key and Peele skit where they're coming up with a lot of gremlins, too. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, that, that's a that's wonderful That's one of my skit. favorites. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. Well, so with regard to organisms actually melting, you know, sort of like turning into a liquid or a goo, uh, there, there was something I briefly wanted to touch on, and it's kind of parallel to some things we've talked about on the show in the past. For example, uh, when we did an episode, I think it was last year, about uh, pressure, uh, it, mm-hmm. about where we talked about, say, you know, organisms that thrive under high pressure uh, deep in the ocean. Uh, one of the things we talked about is that sometimes when fish from deep waters are brought up to the surface, they can undergo a kind of traumatic body response to the lower pressures that they're exposed to on the surface. So there are, for example, types of rock fish or other fish that can, uh, that can suffer eversions of their digestive systems as their swim bladders expand with lower pressure when they're brought up to the surface. So it can actually, actually like push their stomach out through their mouth, which is really disgusting. Don't knock it. Some organisms do that as part of their their just natural behavior. There are certain sharks that uh, do that to. Uh, if, if if memory serves, there are sharks that that do that as a way of emptying their um, uh, their stomach if need be. It's called stomach eversion. Well, for these fish, it is not part of the plan. It's not, <laughs> not it's, voluntary. Uh, no, it happens because like as they get as they rise up, the lower pressure makes their swim the gas in their swim bladder naturally expand. It pushes everything else out of the way, and their guts get like pushed out through their mouth, which is yeah, not good to happen to them. Uh, and there are similar things that can happen, though not not quite as stomach aversion, a little bit more melty that happen to other organisms. The example I was looking at was a type of fish that is known as the snail fish. And there are a number of different types of snail fish. Uh, this is a, uh, it's, it's a genus known as the Liparidae. And Liparidae often dwell in very deep, very cold waters, especially in ocean trenches. And so I was reading a New York Times article about a discovery of several new types of snailfish in 2018. Uh, the article was by Veronique Greenwood. And it was about discoveries of three new types of snailfish of the Atacama Trench, which is off the coast of Chile in the the southeastern Pacific Ocean. And this trench gets very deep. It's almost five miles deep. And down in the dark there, uh, some researchers, I think uh, some of them were associated with Newcastle University, they discovered these three new varieties of snailfish, but they were describing the difficulty in bringing these fish up to the surface because the fish are adapted to these extremely deep waters. And so they were speaking with a researcher named Thomas Lindley, who's uh, with Newcastle University, who says that their tissue is almost entirely gel. Quote, they are really supported by the water around them. So they do have some hard body parts. They have teeth. I've read most species of snailfish have these kind of blunt little uh, cuppy kind of teeth. And then they've got tiny bones, according to this article, especially in the inner ear. And these are really the main hard parts of their bodies. So if you grab some of these snailfish and then you try to bring them up to the surface to examine them, uh, it, it all just goes to hell. Because when they're no longer confined by the hydrostatic pressure of the deep water and the extremely low temperatures of this deep ocean trench, they essentially just melt when they get to the surface. Uh, quoting uh, Tom Thomas Lindley, they fall apart at like the molecular level. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> ghost thing that's disappearing in front of your eyes. And you might think, well, why why would a, a fish be that fragile? You know, wouldn't it need to have a little bit more structural integrity to survive? But no, it's because it's adapted to these extreme conditions that are present only in this deep ocean trench where it lives. Uh, uh, Greenwood writes, quote, this may be because shallow water snailfish gain adaptations that let them thrive in the deepest ocean where they have plenty of prey. So there's less competition down there because less stuff can survive there. 
Quote, but then, because of these physiological changes, they find themselves unable to rise to higher levels to leave, and thus are never seen by humans. So, at the deepest parts of the ocean, in these trenches, you get these islands of adapted organisms, including these types of snailfish, that have to make major changes to their bodies through evolution in order to survive down there. But then once they make those changes, they're kind of stuck, right? They're not going to migrate mm -hmm. out of these deep water trenches once they're there, because now they have bodies that can't survive at the lower pressures and higher temperatures of more shallow water. It's like becoming a professional podcaster. Right. You, you realize, oh my goodness. Yeah. I don't know if I can handle um, different depths. Um, maybe stuck down here. Yeah, you're in the like the challenger deep of career paths where you're like, I specialize <laughs> in uh, talking about science and horror movies. Yeah, people, <laughs> it's a really useful skill. You know, it's it, this is actually ties in with a lot of stuff we're talking about because even in this, we're joking about the fear of change mm -hmm. and and perhaps clinging to stability. Um, and uh, and in, in the case of this this creature, this is a creature that thrives in, in this 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 narrow environment that is pretty stable, but it cannot handle change at all. Uh, and melting, and our fear of melting, our desire to melt, etc. A lot of this do, does seem to center around how we deal with change. And I think one thing to keep in mind is that melting, we've we certainly touched on a lot of horrifying examples, but melting doesn't have to be bad. Uh, just look to our language, uh, you know, because we have, we have some really positive ideas and metaphors that relate to melting uh, at time, like the idea of melting with joy uh, or seeing something or experiencing something that, quote, just makes you melt. Um, there's, uh, I'm sure, if, especially if you, if you or someone you know, uh, enjoys uh, like metal or dubstep music or some other kind of genre that has kind of a, I don't know, um, an, an atmosphere of, um, intensity to it. Sometimes <laughs> you'll say loudness, <laughs> loudness, you'll hear about how it is, it is face melting, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and that, and that is largely depicted as being a positive thing. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite musicians is Neil Young. And I remember an interview many years ago where uh, Conan O'Brien was interviewing him and he he told him, uh, I watched you at some concert play a rendition of Rockin' in the Free World that made my eyes melt. It's clearly a compliment. Did he mean crying? Was he crying? No, no, no. I think he just meant like it was so powerful it like destroyed my body, but he meant it as a compliment. Okay, because yeah, because I think sometimes crying plays into how we're loosely thinking about mm -hmm. melting, but it doesn't seem to be a case where we're using it as like a euphemism for mm -hmm. for crying, you know, or trying to sort of cover up the fact that we're crying, like trying to be like hyper masculine about crying. Right. That doesn't seem to be the way that people use melt. No, but I think there's a very inter interesting thing that if you uh, look at movie scenes where characters are very first beginning to melt, so the melt scene mm -hmm. is happening, very often a place for it to start is with some kind of piece, uh, like a drop of liquid rolling down the face, almost like a teardrop does. I don't oh. know why that is. Interesting. I guess it, it does kind of look like, you know, just water going down the face. You could sort of interpret it as like flesh or the surface of flesh melting. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's a good point. So I was looking around to see if anybody, you know, done any, uh, you know, uh, serious uh, contemplation on this idea of, of, of melting, of, you know, there being a fear of melting or desire to melt. Um, because as we've discussed in the show before, you do see psychological delusions such as that of feeling that your body is, is as brittle as glass and may shatter. Mm -hmm. So why not melting as well? Sure. Yeah. Uh, there are all kinds of... Uh, psychological conditions that can disrupt various features of the body schema or can disrupt uh, types of proprioception where you sense w where your body is, what it feels like, what's happening to it. Yeah, so I, I did not find anything. If, if anyone out there has run across it, I am happy to be corrected. But I'm also, I, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm disappointed that people are not dealing with a psychological delusion that their bodies are melting. Uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, that people are spared that at least. Uh, but I did come across uh, studies in non-deterministic psychology by James L. Fossage. Uh, this is National Institute of Psychotherapies in 1980. And in it, the author discusses psychotherapy approaches that make use of transformative melting metaphors uh, during the waking state of consciousness, which I found quite interesting. So this is not 
you know, th- th- he's, this is very much about like using various mental images as a way of connecting with the patient in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it touches on some of the things we're talking about here. Okay. So uh, in this uh, paper, uh, Fossage men- mentions the melting of a shield with one's warmth. Uh, so that's like there's a shield between you and another person or another thing, and your warmth can be the thing that melts the shield. So you're like a an instrument of melting. And then there's, quote, mm-hmm. the fear of melting, of letting go and becoming vulnerable without adequate defenses, which I think is is very key. And then there's the fear of melting completely and there being nothing left of oneself. This kind of, I guess, going back to the candle uh, metaphor, but also reminding me a bit of the Wicked Witch of the West as well, you know, because she basically melts away to nothing. What it's just left, all that's left is just the clothing that she was wearing. I'd say in psychological terms, the one that I hear emerge most naturally from people is the middle one about the the melting of defenses, the idea that uh, uh, people bring up metaphors of melting when they're talking about uh, uh, people becoming more open and vulnerable with each other. Yeah, which on one hand, you might say, well, that's clearly not what The Incredible Melting Man is about. That's clearly not what RoboCop is about, et cetera. But I'm not con- quite convinced. I think I think these may, on a subconscious level, be be about the yeah the fear of of what happens if we open ourselves up to the world too much, you know, like because it's I mean, look at RoboCop, you know, it's or Street Trash. These are <laughs> films in which the the world around us is depicted as being a horrible place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you want to, I guess, rem- your exterior to remain as, as hard and impregnable as, as possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those cases, like you don't want to melt into that world. That world would melt you. Though I would say one of the main themes of RoboCop is the attempt to hang on to pieces of humanity in an in in an inhuman or inhumane world, in a world that is ruled by by cruelty and uh, corporations and machines and and transactional relationships, trying to hang on to something that's pure and good and human. And you see that emphasized in several of the scenes between Alex Murphy or RoboCop and uh, Lewis, played by Nancy Allen, his, his partner. They've got these these little moments where you can remember that you're human, even when he's mostly machine. That's a that's a very good point. Yeah. And, and again, just more reason to like, no, don't just dismiss RoboCop as, a, <laughs> as this ultra violent, uh, you know, piece of trash or something like there's there's a lot going on there. It's cert- I don't think it's for for all tastes, uh, but it's it's definitely a film that intends to say something. Uh, yeah, it's a movie. It's a movie that's relatable to anyone who's trying to remain a human at the same time that a corporation is extracting maximum value from what's left of your body. Yeah. So, yeah, again, this is a world where that you do not want to melt into. You don't want to let go and become vulnerable because you want to hang on to that part of you that's still human that hasn't been crushed by the machine yet. So I think it's also interesting in all of this, you know, we're talking about this idea of the the metaphorical body uh, melting away and uh, and all and then how this is reflected in these horrific images of the body melting. But while a wax effigy of a human definitely melts, our bodies don't really melt. Even in the even when extreme things happen to them, um, generally what's going on with us is not quite the phase change that we see occurring when, say, ice melts or even when 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 wax is melting away. Um, it's not quite what it's, it's similar to in our episode about freezing, about how our bodies don't exactly freeze solid and shatter in the way that pure water can. Correct. But I think we concluded in that episode that if you get a body cold enough, like, you know, Mm -hmm. down to liquid nitrogen temperatures and use enough force, you can achieve some shattering like kinds of things. And I think something similar is true with melting that the the human body doesn't melt the way Nazis do in the movies, but elements of the human body will kind of melt. I mean, the body is made of different types of tissues and materials, and some of them will sort of melt. Yeah, some 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 parts of our flesh liquefy a little more easily. And in rare cases, human fat in the body has been observed to behave something like the, the wick of a candle. This is called the wick effect. And uh, if you've uh, if you've ever read anything about the, the various theories involving um, uh, spontaneous combustion, mm-hmm. they, uh, the wick effect often plays into this. 
So, so coming back to some of Fossage's uh, explorations about melting, um, I want to come back to the idea of, of losing oneself through melting. And in this, I think melting serves as a strong metaphor for gradual decay, for aging, for the, you know, the gradual work of a debilitating disease. Uh, these effects coupled with the totality of death. You know, because death robs us of everything that we are, and in, the, in its wake, there can be an almost candle-like experience, right? Uh, again, think back to what we talked about in the, the wax episodes about how the candle often had magical um, uh, connotations in various cultures because it was this thing, this physical thing that burned away completely or almost com- completely. You know, and at the end, mm-hmm. you might ask, was the candle even real? Did it exist? Where did it go? And yeah. he, certainly in the face of, of actual human death, not movie human death, but, but actual personal loss, you can feel that as well. Totally, yeah. Now, the idea of melting as phase transfer by which we become more vulnerable without adequate defenses, you know, of letting go, um, you know, I, I think that's extremely apt as well. I, it certainly ties into our uses of melting as in melting with joy. Um, again, perhaps tears add an additional context to a certain degree. Um, but for the most part, it's about becoming more malleable to the world around you, both in positive and in negative ways, connecting with other people, connecting with the environment, uh, but also perhaps opening yourself to the dangers of other people and of society, etc. cetera. Uh, it reminds me a lot of what we discussed in our psychedelic episodes, you know, mm. about the breaking down of boundaries between ourselves and others, between ourselves and the natural world, not only melting, but merging into some larger totality. Uh, in fact, I, I look back just just uh, out of curiosity, I did some quick uh, word searches in a, in a few texts uh, to see who was using melting. And I noticed, for instance, that um, uh, that Huxley did not use melt or melting at all in The Doors of Perception. Mm-hmm. But, uh, for instance, far more recent work um, in uh, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan, uh, he uses melt or melting multiple times in the book. You know, it, it seems like a, a pretty handy contemporary um, uh, mental image to draw upon to make sense of what's happening with the psychedelic experience. Well, yeah. I mean, in fact, I would say melting becomes an interesting way of thinking about uh, psychedel- psychedelic compounds effects on our perception because it even comes through in just the sheer mechanics of um, how imagery transitions under the effects of many psychedelics where there are these things that people talk about like uh, using terms like tracers and things like that where uh, it, mental imagery and even visual imagery is perceived normally doesn't uh, transition as quickly from one state to another, but there seem to be sort of drag effects in between mm. images. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that this simulates a kind of liquidity of uh, mental content that I, I think is is quite aptly described by metaphors of melting. Often on psychedelics, people describe some version of instead of just thinking about image A and then thinking about image B, image A melts into image B. Yeah. I don't know if that was entirely clear, but it just the psychedelics really encourage these sort of like dragging transition states. No, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting to think that like since that kind of thing is so common phenomenologically, it would almost suggest there is something about these compounds that that consistently encourage that at a chemical level in the brain. Yeah, I mean, it's some of it maybe even comes down to like how we're how we're uh, we're taking in sense data, right? Mm-hmm. Is it are we taking in abstract facts about the reality around us, or is it a more fluid observation of reality mm-hmm. in terms of, of of making note of changes? Oh, that's very interesting. So, like, instead of uh, – that maybe you could more easily in, in a normal frame of mind – look at one thing and then look at another thing because you've got cognitive filtering that you're applying to your visual sense data, you know, that, that's sort of like excluding the transition er, uh, the transitional middle period of what your eyes are doing. But on the psychedelic, you're processing things in a rawer way that uh, does not filter out the transitional period as efficiently. Yeah. Like instead of saying, oh, that's my face in the mirror. It's more, yeah, it's a continual updating of it that uh, can create kind of a melting effect mm-hmm. without it actually looking like your face is straight up melting. So I, I, I would never attempt to argue that something like, um, you know, the, the, that to say the psychedelic experience and humanity's history, the psychedelic experience is certainly in the like the 20th century would have been like the, the sole 
uh, influence on all this melting um, fixation in cinema. Uh, but but I, I can't help but wonder if that's part of it. But clearly you still have other things. You have just the cinematic influence and tradition that's going on when, you know, people watch uh, a, a witch melt in one film and then create a melting effect in another film later on. Obviously, that's part of it. Um, and I think also material, the materials in our surrounding culture are a big part of it as well. I mean, we see that, again, with wax, observations of wax, and then what happens when you create a human of wax. Uh, also, what happens when you have uh, you know, a wax culture that becomes eventually an iron culture, and then you have all of this melting and smelting uh, mixed up in, um, in, in, in your understanding of the world? And then what happens when you go from an iron culture eventually to a plastic culture? You know, it brings on new connotations of what melting is, how things melt, and how we might imagine our bodies uh, in reference to that material. Oh yeah, I was just thinking about the the metaphors we live by here. Uh so so the 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 metal metaphor is one in which uh it takes a tremendous amount of work to change one's shape. The plastic metaphor is pretty much just shaped at the factory. You're not going to melt it and reshape it. That that would kind of right. destroy it. So, you know, it's it's you know, the plastic age, you're just stuck. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. And we're back. And, you know, this this ultimately leads us to the next topic we're going to discuss here. And this will be, I guess, the sort of the final topic of discussion in this episode. And that is another major melting symbol or metaphor that comes up uh, that a lot of you are probably thinking about already. And that is the American melting pot. Now, quick note, again, we're recording this episode the week of Halloween 2020, though it won't publish till after 2020's Election Day. So just throwing that out there for timing, should it be essential. So this is another area where I, I think when we're talking about melting, everything that we've discussed so far is still very much in play. Uh, melting and even, you know, the, the fear of melting, but also the potential joy of melting, the transformative nature of melting. It's all reflected in this strange uh, concept uh, of the American melting pot, something that I've heard my whole life. And, and I have to say, I think early on, I always interpreted it's kind of a stew pot. Maybe I was confused by the franchise of fondue restaurants called uh, the melting pot. Uh, I'm not exactly sure because, I mean, clearly it is referring to a, um, a, you know, a metallurgical comparison here. It is an idea of metals melting together in, in a pot. Right. You combine different metals to form a stronger alloy that has the great properties of each. Yeah. On some level, though, I, I did recognize that it seemed to be about different cultures and backgrounds supposedly coming together in this pot that is America and becoming something new. Now, it's this is a, a, a broad and uh, and at times very uh, uh, you know nonspecific. Uh, symbol to engage with because it ultimately raises a lot of questions like is this is this an accurate accurate depiction depiction of what american culture is is it more of an ideal of what it could be is it a misunderstanding of culture is it actually a misunderstanding of melting <laughs> is it a helpful concept is it a hurtful concept uh, and, and certainly, at least to some extent, it depends on how it's being used and who's using it uh, during what period of, um, of, of uh, you know, the, the last uh, century or so of American history. You know, is it something to support the idea of a monoculture and often a particular monoculture or is it anti-multiculturalism? So I decided to look into this a little bit and see and just learn for myself, like, what what are the origins of this term? I, I, I honestly didn't have uh, any idea. Uh, so I read a paper, uh, this is from 1964, by historian Philip uh, Gleason, uh, and it's titled The Melting Pot, Symbol of Fusion or Confusion <laughs> in American Quarterly. Uh, it's a great title, um, Fusion or Confusion. And uh, American Quarterly, by the way, is an academic journal and the official publication of the American Studies Association. Uh, so I want to roll through some of the points that Gleason makes. Uh, I am not attempting to summarize the entire um, uh, uh, write-up here. I recommend seeking this out if you want the full story. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful read, and it's available in full, in full on uh, JSTOR. So first of all, he ties this, this idea back to the myth of metals in Plato's The Republic. Uh, this is also known as the noble lie. And here's how Malcolm uh, Schofield summarized it in the Cambridge Companion to Plato's Republic. 
Quote, the noble lie is to serve as charter myth for Plato's good city, a myth of national or civic identity, or rather two related myths, one grounding that identity in the natural brotherhood of the entire indigenous population. They are all autocathonists, literally born from the earth. The other making the city's differentiated class structure a matter of divine dispensation. The God who molds them puts different metals in their souls. If people can be made to believe it, they will be strongly motivated to care for the city and for each other. If they can be made to believe it. So, I mean, at least in Plato's vision, there's got to be a certain amount of just like getting people on board with a certain way of thinking about things. Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, Gleason writes that the American myth of the metals here is, is ultimately a rejection of the platonic. Uh, and this is uh, the melting pot. Quote, unlike Plato's, it was not deliberately contrived to provide a supernatural sanction for the existing social order. But is it but it is intimately related to the origins and nature of American society. OK, so it's not a supernatural myth that you would tell people like a story that you make up to unify them. But in the case of, of American society, it's supposed to be a fact that is literally just like descriptive and self-evident. Yeah. The, the interesting thing that Gleason drives home about the melting pot, and I hadn't really thought about this as well, is that it's, it's a curious thing to be so entrenched in the national mindset. Uh, because on one hand, it is not an actual thing you can point to. Like you can't go to Boston or Washington, D.C., and be like, hey, should we, hey, family, should we go see the melting pot? Yeah, there it is. We've heard all about the American melting pot. Yeah, behold. No, it, it's not a thing. And on the other hand, it's not a proper symbol either. You can't say, oh, let me, let me fish some dollar bills out of my wallet. Oh, yes, here's the melting pot right here. You couldn't, you, if you were asked to draw the melting pot, what would you draw? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not a concrete symbol per se. To the extent that it's a symbol, it's only a linguistic one. Like the phrase yes. is a symbol, but it's never depicted. Yeah. So uh, Gleason says that it might be more fair to consider it a concept or a theory, uh, but, but it, he also discusses it just in terms loosely as a symbol uh, throughout the paper. Uh, he points out that it's used in many ways. As a simile, America is, is like a melting pot. Sometimes it's a metaphor. America is a melting pot. And sometimes it's a symbol. They traveled across the sea to be part of the melting pot. So the use of the melting pot as a symbol, he says, you know, for the process of immigration into American society, this was popularized basically as recently as 1908 with uh, Israel Zangwell's play that was titled The Melting Pot. Uh, so it's, it's another interesting thing about it. It's not really that old of an idea, uh, and not that the United States is that old of an idea either. But the idea itself it does date back a good bit before 1908, uh, dating back to the 18th century uh, contemplations of the new American man. And particularly, it goes back to the French-American writer J. Hector St. John de Crevecoeur, who lived 1735 through 1813. Crevecoeur wrote uh, pro-American writings during the Revolution. Uh, he also opposed slavery. And he touched on the melting pot concept in Letters from an American Farmer in 1782, in which he, quote, developed or implied all of the themes, unquote, involved in the idea that a new American man would be the product of cross-cultural fertilization. Right. So it would be uh, the sort of what was considered a revolutionary idea at the time that you could build a, a, a civic culture, you could build a polity on the basis of shared ideals rather than shared ethnicity. Yeah, yeah. Like he was very much, at least for, for a time uh, here in a lot of these writings, was very you know, gung-ho about what America could be. This idea that like it's going to be a new thing. We're, we're building a new country here. And, uh, and, and the, the people that occupy it are going to be a new creation in a sense. They're going to be created out of, out of these pre-existing elements. And he did use the word melt to describe the process. Quote, individuals of all nations are melted into a new race of men, unquote, which at least in some ways sounds futuristic and positive. You know, it sounds very plasma pool. Mm -hmm. In his wake, though, you see other people occasionally use it in a different fashion. Uh, for instance, uh, DeWitt Clinton, described by Gleason as a nativistic congressman, uh, used it in the 1840s as a criticism of immigrants who did not melt into American culture and kept aspects of their own culture. 
So again, already we see melt the, the idea of the melting pot being used positively, like like hey, everybody, let's melt together and become something new. And then here's this other guy using it and saying, "Why aren't people melting? I want to see more melting." Yeah, you're not melting enough. You're not melting enough. Me, I well, no, I'm not melted. I, I'm 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 not in, I'm melting. But you you need to do some melting. But still, it doesn't quite enter general usage just yet. Again, not until that play comes around, which we'll get to in a second. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, however, who lived uh, 1803 through 1882, he came close in discussing how Americans, America would, quote, construct a new race, a new religion, a new state, a new literature, and that it would be as, as vigorous, quote, as the new Europe, which came out of the smelting pot of the Dark Ages. So Gleason points to a few different examples there, but uh, the melting pot again doesn't really take off uh, in, uh, in 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 uh, in in our language until uh, the early 20th century. Uh, in that period between the dawn of the 20th century and uh, the start of World War One, uh, this Gleason says is a time when one million immigrants uh, roughly entered the United States of America. Most of them were from Southern and Eastern Europe, and the resulting communities in major cities were considered by some to be to constitute an immigration problem. Thus, the notion of the melting pot. There was a fear of, of an expressed fear of what non-assimilating immigrants meant for the country. Now, the play itself uh, was a big hit, at least with, with audiences, apparently not so much with the, with the, um, uh, the, the theater critics of the day. But it, uh, the plot concerned a Russian-Jewish immigrant family and the main character's desire to melt into a new future devoid of ethnic division and hatred. And it also concerns the plight of the Jewish people in this period of history. Uh, but in, in criticizing the average American of the day, it also, uh, you know, proposed the, 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 it put forth this idea that the melting pot is not something that is, that has been done or is done is not part of a process that we see completed in any person around us, but rather it is an ongoing process that we're all going to be reborn out of. If that makes sense, so it's not. It's so if I if I understand the play correctly. The concept of the melting plot employed here is not one of, hey, immigrants, go get into the melting pot and then come out and then you can be with me. It's more like we are all in the melting pot. We are all melting into something better and and new. Right. Not an exhortation of like you're not melting properly, but just saying like it's descriptive. The melting pot is what happens. Yes, it is an ongoing thing that is happening. It is the, the ongoing transformation of what it means to be an American. Now, Gleason points out that Theodore Roosevelt loved it, but he didn't like the lines in there about Americans being lax on divorce or public corruption. <laughs> so the playwright took it out. He's like, okay, uh, <laughs> got it. Got fair to enough. Teddy happy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it also seems like the, the play carried with it a certain, you know, divisive interpretations depending on who was thinking about the play mm -hmm. and was also then thinking about immigration. You know, is, is it preaching too much conformity on the part of the immigrant or too much transformation on the part of the nation? And I, I guess in that respect, it sounds like the play did what, what good art should do, right? I mean, it's, it's maybe pissing off everybody to a certain extent or making everybody think uh, about like what, what's going on in the country. Well, if I'm understanding correctly, I mean, it may be sort of assuming something that sounds kind of ahead of its time, which is that the cultural assimilation of immigrant communities into uh, into a new country is not necessarily what uh, what the you know the nativist uh, the the angry finger waggers are saying that you're mm -hmm. not assimilating good enough uh, that like that they need to become like the nativist finger waggers instead it's that the nativist finger waggers and the new immigrants are all going to in the future assimilate into the, this this common thing that is yet to come yeah I, I think so yeah the idea that it's 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 something that is happening and will happen. Uh, yeah, as opposed to this this thing that is ha supposed to have already occurred, but it, but it it does get back to a lot of what we discussed already about like how we think about melting, both in its positive and negative connotations. You know, if I'm melting, am I going to lose myself? Will I be hurt when I become soft and malleable? I am. Re am I ready for change? You know. Uh, and, and as Gleason points out, you know, there's a lot of variety in how the melting pot is presented 
And and there are a lot of questions that all the time about what exactly you're trying to say. Like, it, are we talking about a biological blending? Like, is it about, uh, you know, different ethnicities becoming one? Uh, is it a cultural uh, blending that we're talking about? Uh, is it is it all of the culture or just like aspects of the culture? I, I mean, it, again, it, it depends on who's who's trotting it out, really. Uh, you know, is it describing something that used to take place, something that is taking place, something that needs to take place or is taking place with with a few with the future in mind, etc. So I I found it all very, very, um, very intriguing to think about. It makes me even less likely to use the term melting pot in my own conversations, unless I'm, you know, uh, talking with somebody about the concept itself. Like it seems, it seems like it's just too, um, it's too vague and too open to interpretation and also uh, too, too easy to misuse. Yeah, you could look at it that way, and and I gotta say, I, I don't know if I've ever really uh, been somebody who who used this image myself. But on the other hand, as as somebody who you know believes in the project of multiculturalism and uh, and believes like immigration is good for a nation, um, mm-hmm. I, I I do think it's also useful to have imagery, like having symbols and imagery really does help an idea take root. Uh, it's yeah. it's possible that this symbol or imagery is not the best symbol or imagery. I don't know, because it's certainly right that it has like tons of ambiguous meanings. But when you're talking about a trend as big as, uh, you know, trying to form a multicultural polity, I, I guess there probably is going to be a lot of ambiguity in, in whatever imagery you use. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's 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 asking a lot, I guess, of a of a symbol or metaphor to really sum up um, uh, some of what this this uh, this symbol or metaphor is called on to do. Mm-hmm. But again, I found it interesting, especially again, just in terms of thinking once more about melting as this thing that has positive and negative connotations. That ultimately is about uh, how we think about change in our lives, uh, in in the world. Uh, you know, political change, societal change, cultural change, biological change. I got to say, when you proposed a Melt movie episode, this is not the direction I expected it to go, but this has been really interesting. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it as well. I, I don't think I ended, I thought that we'd end up talking about the, uh, <laughs> you know, the substance of America uh, so much. Um, that was not the intent. In fact, if the intent, if it was any intent, it was to not talk about anything political <laughs> or, or, uh, or America-centric. So, uh, but here we are. We have melted into it. And I'll proudly melt up next to you and melt her still today. Are there songs about melting? Um, th- in The Sopranos, there is a metal band uh, that has a song called Melt. Hmm. I know there's, there's, a, there's a Calm Trues album called Galactic Melt, which I think is nice because his, his sound has a very... Like that, that, I think it sums up as something about his sound, like something galactic, mm-hmm. something that is like spacey and specific. But the melting aspect of it has it implies a kind of, uh, you know, biological, uh, uh, you know, amorphous quality that's there as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of like it's, it's you know, biology and technology fused together into one sound. A shoegaze type music has some good sonic melting qualities. I would I would consider like My Bloody Valentine a very melty band. Yeah. I guess vaporwave in in its own way, like just the the word vaporwave, mm-hmm. implies phase transition as well, but a different though one. not yeah. a different one, not melting, but um, <laughs> sublimation. Like, yeah, I, and I don't know that that's something we really explore that much in our uh, our horror movies. So I don't know what happens when the mall turns not from a solid into a liquid, but a solid directly into a gas. Yeah, then you get an eternal loop of the chorus from uh, "Take These Broken Wings." Though, <laughs> real quick, is that you know, is that what happens in um, the Avengers movies? The whole finger snap thing are are hmm? are people turning into vapor, or are they just turning into ash? In that, I don't know. I haven't seen those movies. Okay, or I well, watched the li- first one. I, the listeners I, will have to cue, clue us in on that. Being exposed for the millionth time as somebody who I don't, I'm not in the Marvel thing. I don't really. Well, you'll come back for the next Blade film, I hope. Oh, I guess. I, you know what? I still haven't seen Blade 3, so... Uh. Well, it, it, has, <laughs> it, it has one good line in it, but um, yeah. I can send you a clip of that, and then you're good to go. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here. This was uh, this was melting. This is the episode that's going to close out this year's 
Halloween festivities. But don't worry, we're you know we're coming back uh, next week, and uh, it's going to be new topics, uh, perhaps a little less Halloweeny, but just as uh, as exciting and, and contemplative, uh, in theory anyway. We'll, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> we're just going to see where the rest of the year takes us. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. If you have the ability to do so, just rate, review, and subscribe. You can always find us at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That will shoot you over to the iHeart listing for this show. And somewhere on there, you get to find it for yourself. There's a store button, and that will take you to our T-shirt store, where if you want to buy a T-shirt or a sticker or a bag or what have you, a face mask with um, our logo on it or some sort of monster, you can buy that there. And learn to fly again and learn to live so free. Yes. All right. Uh, Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.